We did this yesterday and then we didn't record anything. Let's so. do a podcast. Eight seconds of silence. Welcome to the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. I'm your host, Katie, and today we are talking about Robert Hansen. And, uh. Was he one of the Hansen brothers? Sure. Yeah, he's the little one. Uh, where are we going for this one, Katie? This one is in Alaska. Alaska. So far, far away. There's a lot of beavers in Alaska. I don't know if that's true or not, not, but they take carnival cruises up there. You know what they say about carnival cruises, right? It's the number one way to die. They go to Alaska sometimes. It's good for hunting if you like to hunt and fish and be in the wilderness. All those things don't sound like uh, all that great if you had to live that way. It's like what Bobby Boy Hansen was into. Yes, it's like Robert Hansen. Speaking of Robert Hansen, Katie, where did you do your research on this one? The book for this one was Fair Game by Bernard Duclaus. <laughs> what kind of name is Bernard Duclaus? French, probably. Yeah. All right. Bernard's a good name, though. But All right, Katie, why don't you go ahead and start us off with this one? Robert Christian Hansen was born to Christian and Edna Hansen on February 15th, 1939 in Esterville, Iowa. When he was only three years old, the family relocated to California, then back to Iowa in 1949, settling in the small town of Pocahontas. That's uh, two towns over from John Smith Village and uh, across the river from the short lady from Dune, Grand Matry. Do you get that joke? <laughs> yes, I have fall. seen the movie Pocahontas. Have you seen the movie Dune? Because <laughs> that's what makes it funny. Robert's father was a Danish immigrant who had learned to bake in his native country, so he decided to open his own bakery once the family had arrived in Pocahontas. Robert began working in the bakery at a very early age, usually waking at 2 a.m. to work before going to school for the day. Hansen's father was an extremely strict disciplinarian, so strict that he required Hansen to use his right hand for everything rather than his dominant left hand. Well, that is because the left hand is the hand the devil works through. They were very religious. Did he smack him on the hand with the ruler? That's not very Christian. My mom actually went through that situation because she is left-handed and she went to Catholic school. This is true. Hansen was also born with a severe stutter like his father's, which became even more severe when he was struggling against his natural instinct to use his left hand. Hansen's strict work schedule, stutter, and his face, which he himself (laughs) described as one big pimple, led to him being a quiet, painfully shy loner all through his school years. His personality probably played a part in that, too. Yeah, he was basically, like, one of the earliest incels. Well, I mean, his face was one of his main problems, so they had that usually. I just picture he looks like Rocky Dennis. You can probably all guess, based on the description of Hanson, <laughs> that girls made fun of him very frequently. From an early age, Hanson began harboring a strong resentment for women. He felt rejected and inadequate, which may have been made even worse by his mother, who was the opposite of Hanson's strict father. So she coddled him? Basically. She didn't have any set boundaries or rules for him, and then he would get punished by his dad for breaking the rules that he didn't have. His dad was just, like, getting all pissed off. He's like... So how did this make him feel rejected and inadequate from his mom? Like, I kind of feel like his mom like coddled him a little bit or whatever so why would he that make him feel rejected just rejected by women he wanted to uh sexualize basically yeah so he grew up seeing women as the only people that could provide him comfort 
And then when he tried to have a relationship with a woman that wasn't his mother and was rejected, he was denied that comfort, basically. I see. Okay. On top of all of this, the family was relatively poor, making it nearly impossible for Hansen to find the time or money to be able to participate in any sort of social activity with friends. During high school, he discovered his love for hunting and fishing, solitary hobbies that allowed him full control over another being's life. Activities that could have probably been helpful to his relatively poor family, but I'm guessing that he was a lot less into eating the stuff that he killed and more into just, like, killing it in a creepy way. I think so. I think they ate some of it, but... I think hunters kind of get away with the power of killing, like, the, the whole domineering aspect of it by saying they're doing it for food, but really they just like to kill. The food is secondary. It's not necessarily needed for the most part. Like, his family could probably afford to eat, but they probably just didn't have any extra money since they owned a bakery and things like that. If you own a bakery, you're always in the bread. Hansen graduated in 1957 and continued to work in his father's bakery for a short period before joining the Army Reserves. He went to Fort Dix in New Jersey for basic, and there he was chosen at random to be a USO Soldier of the Week, earning him a weekend in New York City. Along with another soldier, Hansen decided it would be there that he lost his virginity, and the two men brought two prostitutes back to their hotel. Just like in Forrest Gump, except neither of them was a lieutenant. Is this like a common thing for... Army people in the 60s, 50s? It's called Fort Dix. I don't I don't know. I'm going to go ahead and say yes. a really oddly specific question for me to know the answer to. If you lived in the 1960s. <laughs> I kind of feel like since it's, you know, New Jersey, the guys just, you know, hop over the border. and. After finishing basic, Hansen was stationed in Fort Knox, Kentucky, where he continued to seek the services of prostitutes every weekend. He returned to Pocahontas in 1959 on reserve status and went back to work at his father's bakery. So was his ugly face the reason he went after prostitutes? Probably. Okay. I imagine he was just like made women cry as soon as they looked at him. I don't know. My thing is it's probably, you know how you you find yourself 80% less attractive than you potentially are or whatever. Like you, it's uh, that seems very high. I don't know. I guess uh, I don't know. It's it's whatever number it is. I just said first number that came to my head, but it's that self image thing where you don't see the things that other people see or whatever. Well, yeah, you can only you're... see your imperfections and shit. I wonder if he just had that sort of syndrome because I mean it's not impossible for ugly dudes to get laid. I was at Walmart today, and I tell you for a fact, ugly weirdos can get laid. But well, just because they're walking through Walmart with. With their significant other, and they both have the hands down each other's pants and stuff. It's really gross, but I see. There's it. a pandemic, people. I know it was absolutely disgusting. Dude had his hands down the back of his girl's pants, and they were standing in line to get some prescription filled. It's like 110 outside. Yeah, and she was wearing straight up. Uh, what are those spandex pants? The tights. She was wearing tights. After his return, Pocahontas formed a junior police force consisting of 8th through 11th grade boys who would be trained in basic first aid, fire prevention, and traffic control. Hansen was chosen to be the drill instructor. He began to gain some confidence, but his stutter remained and his face was now pockmarked from his acne scarring. So, despite his horribly ugly face, he still managed to meet and begin dating a woman who he married a year later in 1960. He also made a new friend, a 16-year-old who Christian Hansen hired to work at his bakery. 
On the evening of December 7, 1960, Hansen convinced the boy to help him burn down the Department of Education's bus barn in the middle of the night. Bob Hansen did this? Yes. So my question is, how hard was it to convince this 16-year-old to do that? It depends. Was it like a cool, like chill 16-year-old or was it like Rory at 16? Rory at 16 may have burnt down the bus depot, though. That's exactly what I'm saying. I, it didn't talk much about the 16-year-old's personality. Interesting. But I assume because Robert was older, he kind of looked up to him and thought, well, if he's going to do this, then fuck it, I will too. He said, that guy's a Pocahontas educational development officer. He used his, uh, his extreme ugliness to gain confidence in this kid. So three buses, the barn, and all of their contents were destroyed. After looking through the rubble, a fire marshal determined it had been arson, and an investigation began. Hansen wasn't a suspect, as he was a volunteer firefighter and actually was there that night helping put out the fire. But three months later, his 16-year-old co-worker and co-conspirator called police and told them exactly what had happened, saying it had been weighing on his conscience. Hansen was arrested and charged with arson on March 29, 1961, and held on $2,500 bond, which his mother paid for him. So that's the equivalent of $21,554.93 in today's money. And for reference, the best-selling car in 1961 was an Impala four-door sports sedan, which, by the way, is worth way more than $21,000 now. But they cost $2,769. So she picked her kid over a new Impala. You only have to pay 10%. Yeah, so it's 250 bucks. Thanks, though. Appreciate all the math you did on that one. There's no math involved. It's Google. Thanks, Google. Appreciate all the time you put into this podcast. He waived his preliminary hearing, and it wasn't until September that Hansen was indicted. He pleaded guilty, saying, I guess I burned down the bus barn because I hated the school with a divine passion. I would do whatever I could think of to get back at that monster school that did Bob Hansen a personal wrong. Now, what was the personal wrong that they did him? Nobody liked him, and that was the school's fault. So he didn't even come with an answer for that? Very simple question. He didn't come out and say. I don't think anyone cared enough to ask what the oh, okay. personal wrong was. I think they were like, all right, buddy, shut up. Yeah, you burnt yeah. down a bus barn because you were personally hurt by the school. He was sentenced to three years at the state reformatory on October 9th, 1961, and his wife quickly divorced him. Smart woman. At the reformatory, Hansen was diagnosed with an infantile personality based on his desire for revenge. He admitted he fantasized about doing violent things to women he felt rejected him, and about destroying the town water tower and police cars, which he felt would be getting even. So did he think that if all the women stopped showering that they would just stop noticing how repulsive and gross that he was? Is this guy just trying out to be a Batman villain? It was during his psychiatric workups at the reformatory that Hansen figured out how to trick the system. Based on his treatment after speaking to the psychiatrist and telling the truth, he realized that it's far easier to pretend that he blacks out and doesn't remember committing whatever crime he's being punished for. This would be his go-to excuse from this point on. In 1962, he had another evaluation, which still determined he had an infantile personality, but decided that his condition had improved and his behavior had been good, allowing him to be paroled on May 1st, 1963. Is infantile personality like a split personality, or what is it? It's basically you have no control over your emotions and your actions, I assume. I don't think that it's like an actual official diagnosis for anything, but they said he had antisocial traits. Just because of the game he was putting on? He's a baby brain syndrome. 
Instead of returning to Pocahontas, Hansen went to Minnesota where his parents had recently purchased a resort. He worked for them briefly and also met his second wife, Gloria. They tried long distance when she returned to Iowa for college, but eventually decided she should return to Minnesota and marry him. Poor choice. They moved around for a bit before settling in Bloomington, Minnesota, where Hansen took a job at a bakery. Ah, back to the family business. Towards the end of his two years working there, his boss and co-workers began to notice random merchandise such as radios and small appliances hidden around the bakery. He had been stealing them and hiding them around his work so his religious wife wouldn't find them. Jesus frowns upon stealing, Jake. I mean, he does, but this guy wasn't stealing. His wife would be like, hey, go to the store, get a dozen radios, and he'd come back with 13. He was arrested on February 22, 1965 for stealing fishing line and lures from a sporting goods store. Gloria was able to get her pastor to put a good word in for Hansen, and the charges were eventually dropped. In May, he was arrested again for stealing a softball. I think he might have misheard something his lawyer said. He was like, oh man, that DA was really playing softball. <laughs> He's like, steal a softball? DA needs a soft softball. <laughs> so... The word of the pastor is pretty good? In small town Minnesota, yeah. Huh. Small town USA, Roar. You know, he's kind of like the main character of Les Miserables. Is his name Jean Valjean? I don't know. I don't know. But he steals a loaf of bread. The story is he steals a loaf of bread to feed his family and gets sent to prison. And one of the guys adopts his daughter and her name is Miserable or something. I don't know. I it's never Aladdin. saw it. I don't remember it, but... It's just Aladdin, man. Um, I'm glad this guy was the same way. He was, you know, getting some fishing line and softballs to keep his family fed. Well, fishing line is for keeping your family fed. What about the softball? You have to kill the fish somehow. <laughs> In 1967, Gloria graduated and the couple decided they needed a change of scenery. They decided to move to Alaska and arrived in Anchorage in August. Hansen found a job at a Safeway bakery and Gloria as a teacher. Their first few years in Alaska were uneventful as Hansen had rediscovered his love for hunting and took a break from arson and theft. In 1971, he and Gloria had their first child, a daughter. Apparently, the stress of fatherhood brought Hansen's bad side back out. On November 15th, Susie Heppard was driving back to her apartment when she met eyes with Hansen at a red light. Thinking nothing of it, she went home and got ready to get in the shower, but was stopped by a knock at her door. When she opened it, she was shocked to see Hansen, the man she'd briefly made simple eye contact with. He told her he was looking for someone else and asked to see her phone book, which she allowed. Then he asked her if she'd like to go on a date. She told him she was engaged and figured that was the end of it. On Monday, she drove some friends to work around 5 a.m. and returned to her apartment. As she pulled into her driveway, she saw a man rush behind the neighboring apartment building. Stepping out of her car, the man, Hansen, appeared in front of her and put a gun to her head, telling her to be quiet or he'd blow her brains out. Susie screamed, which was heard by her roommates, who opened the door to call down to her. When Susie didn't reply, the police were called. Once the roommate opened the door and shouted that the police had been called, Hansen stuck the gun to Susie's back and started walking her to the street. Suddenly, he became nervous, putting the gun down and walking away from Susie. That's why if someone ever tells you to be quiet or else anything, you should just immediately shriek and scream as loud as you possibly can. Fire. And flail. Unless they panic and shoot you immediately. Well, better to be shot dead on the street than raped in an alley. 
says a guy who has done neither, experienced neither. Police canvassed the neighborhood and found Hansen, who matched the description given by the woman. He told the officers he'd been driving and gotten dizzy, so he pulled over to get some fresh air. He said he may have been involved in the incident, but didn't remember any of it. His typical MO at this point, right? Yeah. Hansen was arrested for assault with a deadly weapon, and his preliminary hearing held December 2nd. His defense attorney asked that he be seen by a psychiatrist and release on his own recognizance, based on the fact he had a wife, a child, and a home, and fit the profile of a well-respected man. Translation, he was white. The judge agreed, and two weeks later, Hansen was indicted by a grand jury in order to see a psychiatrist before proceedings continued in January. On December 15th, Barbara Fields was driving home when she decided to stop at a cafe for a warm cup of tea. Sitting down inside, she realized that she should have left her car running so it would be warm for her drive home. As she was starting it up, she noticed a man pull into the parking lot next to her and begin walking to the cafe door. Not thinking anything of it, she got out and headed back for her tea, but was stopped by the man who was now blocking the entrance. He tried talking to her, and she noticed a slight hesitation and stutter in his voice, something all of Hansen's victims remember. Ignoring him, Barbara tried pushing past into the cafe, but was stopped in her tracks when he pulled out a gun and pointed it at her. Hansen put the gun to her back and led her to the front seat of his Pontiac, and the two began to drive through town. Laughing at a cop passing by them, Hansen told her there goes your help and threatened that if they were to be pulled over and she said something, he would have to kill the officers. He hit her, then told her he was going to tie her up and pulled over. Kneeling in front of the dash, Barbara's hands were tied together behind her back with leather shoelaces from Hansen's pocket. He then moved her to the back seat, tying her ankles together before getting back in and continuing down the road. He eventually made it to a dead end and stopped the car, turning around and staring at Barbara on the back seat. To her surprise, he politely asked her if he could rip her bra off. She explained she'd just gotten it and it was rather expensive, so she'd rather he didn't. He complied, untying her hands and telling her to undress herself so it didn't get ruined. Was this a, was this a nice thing to do? I'm kind of confused. He said that she'd been cooperating, so he. I think this was him trying to make her feel more comfortable and keep her complying, basically. As she took her clothes off, Barbara asked if they could go get some cigarettes for her, and Hanson agreed. He had her put her coat on and tied her wrist to the door handle before driving to a nearby cafe and buying a pack. He untied her again so she could smoke, then laid her back down and retied her wrists. Hanson drove them 80 miles outside of Anchorage and stopped in a field, telling Barbara to get up front and remove the rest of her clothing. He kissed and fondled her for 15 minutes, then had her put her boots and coat on and drove again, this time in search of a cabin or hotel room. So it's got to be kind of cold for this whole situation. Is that why he's like trying to go find somewhere else or is there an anchorage? I just. I think it's just easier to do what he's about to do in a bed. It's just strange that he's trying, that he's like got it all like thought out. I, th I thought most of the time these things were just like. No, he went hunting for women to do this too, so it was all very meticulously planned out. He rented a room at the Sunrise Inn, then covered Barbara's tied wrists with her dress and led her to the room. He told her, listen, don't goof up, I'd hate to have to kill someone. Once inside the room, Barbara asked to take a warm bath and Hanson agreed. When she was finished, he tied her to the bedpost and went into the bathroom himself. When he came out undressed, Barbara noticed that the end of his penis was either deformed or mutilated in some way. 
Hansen then raped her, telling her to try harder or he would put her in the hospital. Once finished, he slept for an hour, then forced her back to the car and headed back towards Anchorage. Barbara was relieved to be headed home, but suddenly Hansen made a U-turn and began heading back the opposite way. He explained that he wanted to show her a cabin that he'd taken a woman to the weekend before. Did he take that woman to that cabin in the same manner that he had taken Barbara? I don't know anything about the story. I don't know if he was lying to her or if the woman just never came forward. It's just really strange. Like, hey, let me show you what I did, how I did this to someone last week. Fortunately for Barbara, it had snowed heavily and Hansen wasn't able to make it up the mountain and was forced to turn around. This irritated him and he took out his gun and pulled over. He forced her out of the car and told her to start running. Instead, Barbara likely saved her life by falling to her knees and begging not to be shot. She complimented him, told him they could date, and promised she wouldn't go to the police. She told him to get her license out of her purse and write down everything about her to guarantee she wouldn't report him. He found a piece of paper with her parents' name and address and copied it, putting it into his wallet for safekeeping. He then put her back into the car, drove to Anchorage, and dropped her off at the cafe. Barbara's car was dead from sitting idle so long, so she called her father, a state trooper, and told him what had happened. He and her brother rushed to pick her up. Fearing for the safety of her family and child, she didn't go to police and asked her father to not say anything. She changed her mind on December 22nd when Celia Van Zitten left her family's home to get a soda and never returned. Three days later, on Christmas morning, two men at McHugh Creek Campgrounds, 20 miles outside of Anchorage, discovered Celia's frozen body on a ravine, hands tied behind her back. Her autopsy revealed that she hadn't been dead when she was thrown into the ravine. She died of exposure, attempting to climb up the slope she was found on. Seeing this in the paper, Barbara Fields went straight to the state trooper office and told them what had happened. At the Sunrise Inn, they discovered Hansen had used his real name to rent the hotel room and quickly tracked him down and arrested him. So was he was he actually responsible for Celia Van Zanten, or did she just happen to get like see it and think that it was him, so she went to the police? I don't think he ever officially confessed to it, but she's one of his assumed victims. Inside his wallet, Hansen still had the piece of paper with Barbara's parents' names and address on it. Troopers told the jail staff that there was evidence in the wallet and they would be back with a warrant. During booking, Hansen was able to get the paper out and hide it in his pocket. When a corrections officer noticed his behavior, he took him aside for a shakedown and found the crumpled paper in his pocket. Hansen said it was the names of the people who were going to raise his bail, and unaware of what it actually was, the officer copied the names down but threw the paper away. Detectives frantically searched for it, but the paper was never found. Without the names and addresses in Hansen's handwriting, they had no evidence against him. He was arraigned on December 29th and held on $50,000 bail. But at this point, their case was kind of shaky because they didn't have the paper anymore? Yeah, they. I mean, they had Barbara's testimony, but they had no physical evidence, basically. Barbara testified at Hansen's January 7th preliminary hearing, calmly and precisely detailing what he had done to her. The defense did everything to make the attack look like Barbara's fault, asking her about her time working as an exotic dancer, if she'd ever been a prostitute, pointing out that she had children but had never been married, and making her tell the court what she was wearing. So, pretty much just typical of back then, just anything trying to shame or discredit a female victim? Yeah, especially in a rape case, they always tried to make it look like the woman's fault. I wonder how many... Men have walked free because of that very defense. A lot. A lot of them still do to this day. That's stupid. 
When the attorney attempted to fluster her by asking minute details of the attack, Barbara never wavered and answered every question thrown at her. Hansen was indicted on kidnapping, rape, and assault with a deadly weapon by a grand jury on January 26th. He pleaded not guilty. Fuck this guy. Fuck this guy for sure. On March 2nd, the psychiatrist assigned to the Hansen for the Susie Hepburn case deemed him competent to stand trial, and Hansen pleaded not guilty. A month before the cases were set to go to trial, Hansen reached a plea agreement. He would plead guilty to the assault with a deadly weapon charge in the Susie Hepburn case in exchange for all charges in the Barbara Fields case being dropped. The agreement was made when the defense discovered that Barbara was not likely to testify in trial after the ordeal she went through at the preliminary hearing. Hansen's psychiatrist testified that he diagnosed Hansen with schizophrenia based on his dissociative periods where he would black out and commit violent acts. His recommendation was counseling and two to three years of close supervision. But of course that diagnosis was bullshit because it was based on Hansen's made-up blackouts, right? He was malingering. Malingerer. He's a malingerer. Fucking malingerer. So, you can't, can you really just, like, say someone only needs two to three years of close supervision and counseling to get them over uh, schizophrenia? I mean, the point of it is to make them not a danger to themselves or others, and so I don't think you need to make them into a perfect person just enough to not do this again. Hopefully. Hansen's character witnesses testified that they knew him as a respectable member of society and a family man who loved his wife and daughter deeply. The judge was impressed by the witnesses, but stated he believed Hansen was a danger to society and sentenced him to five years, with parole being possible when a psychiatrist could assure he was no longer dangerous. He recommended a work release as soon as possible rather than prison so Hansen could continue to support his family. Because that's all he was, was a good, hard-working guy. Just fell in with the wrong crowd. And his wife stuck around for all of this, for some reason. She was a malingerer, too. Hansen was released from prison to a halfway house after five months. When he later recalled this time in his life, he said, While I was at the halfway house, at first my wife or an officer would drive me back and forth to work. Then, before long, I could drive myself. I'd drive downtown in a hurry, and I'd sit there, and I'd watch the prostitutes walking up and down the street, and I'd get a tremendous, gosh dang, I was parked there just to watch the prostitutes walking 4th Avenue because it gave me this here sexual blow-up charge. I got to thinking right at that time, even when I was in jail, that boy, I couldn't wait to do it again. This man lives his life with no regrets. Yeah, he also has a very strange way of speaking. Gosh dang. Yeah, and he said, he told Barbara, don't goof up. Yeah, gosh dingly dang it, I'm getting a biddly boner here. Basically. In November 1972, Hanson's psychiatrist went before the parole board and explained what great progress he'd made. He recommended parole, but the board decided against it, instead granting him furlough from the halfway house meaning he got his freedom back and was basically, in a way, paroled. Golly gosh, I'm so glad to be paroled and do it again. That's probably pretty correct. Like Rory said earlier, he was white and yeah. he had a family, so ah, uh, he can do no wrong. You know, these days there are so many crackheads who are white and have families. If that was the basis for just people thinking you're a good person... You'd just be getting taken advantage of by white crackhead family having people all over the place. 
To finish this episode up and prepare us for next week, we're going to set the scene of Anchorage in 1973, right as Hansen was being paroled. In 1968, two oil wells were discovered in the Prudhoe Bay area that together contain roughly 25 billion barrels, the largest oil well in North America. Unfortunately, Prudhoe Bay was located in the vast wilderness of Alaska, making transporting that much oil out of the area extremely difficult. Multiple propositions were made, but in 1973, it was decided and approved that the Trans-Alaska Pipeline would be built. Basically, all this is is 800 miles of pipe that oil can be pumped through to reach Valdez, Alaska, and from there be transported out. Pretty impressive. 800 miles of pipeline? It's a lot of welds. Also in 1973 was a major oil crisis that caused prices to skyrocket, causing President Nixon to sign legislation allowing the pipeline to be built. Did it jump up to like 33 cents a gallon? I won't go into specific details on this, but moral of the story is that Alaska, whose population was relatively low, was preparing to be hit by a massive influx of people. Around 30,000 laborers moved to the state to work on the pipeline, raising the population 3% practically overnight. These laborers made good money and were, of course, men. What sort of establishment would rake in tons of money for men who had too much time and money on their hands? Strip clubs. Cha-ching, cha-ching! A man named Frank Colacurcio ran the organized crime scene in Seattle and saw his opportunity to make even more money in Alaska. His crew already ran successful strip clubs and pornography shops in Seattle, so gaining liquor licenses and finding dancers to send out to the new clubs was easy. The Colacurcio crew also ran a side business called Talent West, which recruited exotic dancers and sent them to their clubs all over the western United States. They preyed on women who were down on their luck or looking to get out of a situation, promising big money and all-expenses-paid apartment to live in, wherever they ended up. The crew opened multiple topless bars in what became known as the Tenderloin District of Anchorage, basically another name for a red-light district. When the dancers arrived in Anchorage, supplied by Talon West, they realized that the big money promised to them was a scam. The women were now broke, stuck in a city completely foreign to them, thousands of miles away from their families, and controlled by the mafia. Instead of finding a way out of a bad situation, they ended up in an even worse one. To survive, many of the exotic dancers were forced to turn to prostitution, adding in a pimp that now also controlled them. This actually happened in, it was either North Dakota or South Dakota. It may have been South Dakota when uh, they discovered all of the whatever natural gas or whatever they were piping out there, and they sent out all these workers to it. It brings in it brings in people like the Craigslist prostitutes that advertise on there and stuff. So this isn't like anything that doesn't keep repeating wherever people go. It's like the old west where you always have like a cat house or a whorehouse and a bar. I don't think Craigslist wants to be implicated like that. This was back in the day though. It was like two thousand fourteen when you could still have Craigslist hookers. I thought they were always back page. With an influx of dancers and sex workers controlled by major players in the organized crime scene, Anchorage saw a major influx of women being reported missing in the Tenderloin District. The state troopers immediately took notice and began protecting the women any way they could, providing classes at their club on how to protect themselves, patrolling the area more than usual, and even acting as bouncers for the women and walking to them to their cars at night. Unfortunately, no matter how diligent the troopers were, women continued to go missing. Many were found months or years later in a different city under a different name, whisked out of Anchorage by their local church or families before their pimps or Talent West could figure out what was going on. Why would Talent West want to know where they were at that point when they had pretty much ditched them in Alaska? Because they make money off of them. 
Many women, though, were found under very different circumstances, some never turning up no matter how hard police looked for them. Over the course of ten years, 17 of these women fell victim to Robert Hansen, and we'll be discussing their stories next week. 17. Confirmed. Wow, that's, uh... Up to 21. That's a real high number. Yeah. Jesus, for Alaska, all prostitutes. When If you would have told me that before me knowing about the pipeline, I probably would have been like, that's all the prostitutes in Alaska. <laughs> it's every last one of them. Yeah, no, there was... That's why it's important to, like, know the backstory, because there was a huge, huge influx of sex workers. Yeah. And easy victims, basically. Yeah, and the less dead, I mean, they were already basically torn away from their families and plopped in the middle of nowhere. Like, desperate for money. Desperate for money. Almost oh. nobody miss, would miss them. Yeah, exactly. That's crazy. Yeah, I think in the book, they said that the population of Anchorage compared to how much acreage the whole entire state is, basically, is comparative to 11 people living on Manhattan, in Manhattan. No shit. Yeah. Hell yeah, that's where I want to be. Because it's a huge state, and there's no one wants to fucking live there. Yeah, I mean, and then they you... did all of a sudden. So yeah, of course, go where the, people money. go where the money is. Yeah, yeah. On a side note, uh, Cola Curcio. It's a pretty cool ass name. I'm not gonna. I mean, lie. it's definitely a mafia man's name. I Hell could yeah. be saying it wrong, but Cola Curcio. I sounded Cola it out, Curcio. and that's what I came to. So you come with me on my daughter's wedding day. My name is Cola Curcio. Don, and you Don ask Kulo. me, you ask me for a favor, and I say to you, this favor will cost you something later down the line, but Curla Cusio will definitely let you know. Thank you, Don Culo. <laughs> You're welcome. So, is that going to end up for this this week? Yes, yeah, so we're going to probably wrap it up next week. All right, guys, that's been it for part one of Robert Hansen. Tune in next week to hear the rest of this story, and. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can feel free to email us at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, and on Twitter at our recently changed handle, fourcornerscast. 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 We got banned on our other account. Why? What did you do, Rory? Uh, I the they didn't tell us. They were just too hot on my conspiracies. I think <laughs> they and obviously thought you, no, you were onto something. Yeah. We also have a Tumblr now, which is tumblr.com forward slash Four Corners Crimecast. And Tumblr's just for looking at pictures of titties, right? Not anymore. No. You oh. can't do that. Crime scenes now. Crime scenes with titties. Sometimes, if that's what you're into. As long as no one reports it. All right, and don't forget to give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify. Check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com. Head over there for a full episode list to send us ideas for an episode you want to hear or to get your free sticker from our merch store by entering Bingo Bango at checkout. We'll ship that out to you 100% for free. So hope you guys are looking forward to next week. It's going to be pretty brutal, and we look forward to seeing you then. See ya. Talk to you later. Adios, motherfuckers. Fucking shocking. Awesome. I don't think the listeners want to hear that, Katie. Some of them might have got. No, it's going in. Some of them might have got a boner.